foreheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for gathering this family together on a night like this. It's so special even. This is our family after all, and this is the unity of the faith that we seek and that we all enjoy. Thank you for encouraging us this way. Thank you for making it possible for us to get together this way. Father, thank you for the completed canon so that we might delve into it and study out the things that you've revealed to us. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for grace. Thank you for love. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this evening, that would like to be, and we pray mostly for those that are still lost. We're so grateful and thankful for your son's work whom you sent to die in our stead, to make an evening even like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, uh, why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace, they were prepared. Remember, this is part of a series that uh, has just been phenomenal um, in the sense that we're able to relate to the apostles uh, as ordinary individuals. Uh, I did, before I want to jump in, before we jump in, I wanted to share, I alluded to a poem on Sunday, and I really kind of butchered it. Um, but it's a good poem um, in the sense that it's, it's good perspective. Uh, the individual that wrote it, I don't know much about them. I don't even know if they're a Christian, but it doesn't mean that good wisdom uh, can't be gleaned from uh, even a secular writer. So let me just read it to you. Take out of it what you'd like. I just wanted to share it because I alluded to it on Sunday. <clears throat> Make the ordinary come alive is the title. Make the ordinary come alive. Do not ask your children to strive for extraordinary lives. Such striving may seem admirable, but it is a way of foolishness. Help them instead to find the wonder and the marvel of an ordinary life. Show them the joy of tasting tomatoes, apples, and pears. Show them how to cry when pets and people die. Show them the infinite pleasure in the touch of a hand and make the ordinary come alive for them. The extraordinary will take care of itself. Isn't that nice? That's by William Martin. Uh, and it's just good food for thought. And it kind of settles your soul because um, in America, if you're not, quote, extraordinary, um, then there's something wrong with you. In America, if you're not an idol, then you need to sign up for American Idol before it's too late. It's horrible, is it not? It's a, it's, a, it's a trap. It's a ploy. It's a game. People chasing carrots, for, and they'll never get there. Uh, as Solomon said, striving after the wind. I was thinking about that, though. As I mentioned earlier, a corollary thought after reading that poem is, you know, why is it that a man that isn't even a Christian, to my knowledge, has more to say than most Christians? I don't mean to belittle the poem itself because from our perspective as practicing members of the faith, it rings true. Like everything the Spirit's been teaching us from this pulpit as of late, it's just a matter of perspective. For example, some review from Tuesday's wonderful lesson. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Scott, for delivering it. 
Tetelestai, it is finished. It gives us enduring perspective. It is finished. That gives us enduring perspective. It's done. We won. You get it? We won. The game's over. And you're on the winning team if you're saved. There's nothing else left. Even my, I was talking to Sean this week, and we were talking about the kids that he runs with, you know, and the kids in his school. And they're good kids, but they're all chasing something, and they're all filled with anxiety because they're chasing things without any real value. And the best they've got to hope for is a good life because they don't have Christ. And he says, I just tell them, you know, people, it's just fair to say, Sean, people ask him, why are you so calm and collected and confident? He says, because I have Christ. And they're like, right? Is that, yeah, right? He says, they look at him like, <laughs> well, good for you. If that works for you, you know. We have Tadalestai. It is finished. It gives us enduring perspective. And I'm with Scott on this. It's just impossible to fully appreciate all that God has done for us. It's impossible. Yet, is it fair to say that we often forget to show our gratitude at all? Is that fair? We often forget to show any gratitude. So I would like to personally publicly say, I am so sorry, Lord, forever forgetting. It's sad. It's pathetic. It's weak. It's awful. But if we're honest, we do. Again, the point on the board, it is finished, gives us enduring perspective. Think of this. The cross is the greatest example of grace we've got, including the person who hung on it, whom the Bible describes as full of grace and truth, John 1.14. And then everything after the Messiah is really an extension of grace. So we have the perfect example of grace, the, the, the greatest manifestation of grace and love, that is the cross. And then everything after the cross is just an extension. That's why we call it the gospel reality. We, I, I think of it as being tethered, you know, from faith to faith, uh, Romans 1.17. It's from faith to faith that we live. The from faith part is our salvation. The center of that, of course, is the cross and the person who hung on it, who said, it is finished who we can trust, who is the very embodiment of grace and truth. So everything after the Messiah is an extension of grace. And just like the grace our God didn't, you know, just like uh, the grace of God didn't fail him on the cross, it won't fail us regarding carrying our own crosses. You know why? Because grace never fails. It never fails. It didn't fail him on the cross. And it's not going to fail you with your cross, whatever that one is that you bear. This is absolutely true. Grace never fails. No matter what man concludes to the contrary, if, for example, you don't see the good in something, it is your limitation, not God's failure. For even discipline is grace. Doubt is not from God. Grace never fails. That's absolutely true. To say grace fails means that God fails. And God doesn't fail because he's perfect. 
So you have to accept the fact that if you don't see the good in something, that's your limitation, not God's failure. Even discipline is grace. Grace never fails. This statement is not something you want to forget. Seriously. It's not something you want to forget. Grace never fails. It's this very statement that Satan spends inordinate amounts of time trying to distract you from. He doesn't want you to believe that grace never fails. He wants you to doubt. But doubt's not from God. And it's certainly not a function of true grace. So Satan spends an inordinate amount of time trying to distract you from that truth. He does so by getting you to join in the futility of the world's system. He does so by making things attractive to your senses and sensibilities. He does so by lying to you, proposing that you can actually catch the wind. But I'm here to tell you, the Bible says you can't catch the wind. You can't catch it. How often do we find ourselves striving after the wind? Reference to Ecclesiastes, Solomon. Yet, even knowing the impossibility of catching it, man chooses the path of futility over God's righteous way. Why? Arrogance. I mean, we know better. So what's our problem? Why is it that every day we have to tell ourselves, stop striving after the wind. Shake this off. Shake off the sewage, the sewage shake it off do what you're doing right now that's why it's encouraging folks because I know that the word is right now washing over you doesn't matter what kind of problem you came here with this evening it's washing over you I would argue that it's gotten so bad in our own country that attempting to catch the wind has become a sort of sport Go to Proverbs 10.23. Proverbs 10.23. It's funny because that's exactly how the Bible speaks to such things. Sport. Attempting to catch the wind has become a sport of sorts. Proverbs 10.23. You ready for this? You probably didn't even know this was in here. Huh. Doing wickedness is like a sport to a fool. Can you imagine that? I know some of you are going to go home and watch the football game. That's not what we're talking about. Doing wickedness is like sport to a fool. And so is wisdom to a man of understanding, though. What game are you playing? A wicked person plays a game. A wise person plays a different game. So says the Bible. As the Apostle Paul stated, if we're going to make sport of anything, let it be to live by faith. Let us navigate the world around us. Let us be accepting of the fact that we're in it but not of it. Let us, if you must, honestly... To keep yourself from emotionally drowning, make it a game. It's, it's kind of a joke. 
honestly, this world is a joke. It's serious. It's a very solemn fact, but it's a joke. And, and sometimes I do that for myself. I say, it's just a game. So let's play. 1 Corinthians 9.24, Amplified. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run their very best to win? But only one receives the prize. Run your race in such a way that you may seize the prize and make it yours. So make it sport. There's nothing in the Bible that I see that says that life can't be enjoyable that way that the very challenge of life, there's not a blessing in undertaking it as unto the Lord. So run as if to win. Run your race as well. It's not that Satan doesn't want you to run a race. He just wants you to run towards a different finish line than the one the Lord has set before you. Go to Philippians 3.12. Philippians 3.12. Oh, Satan will definitely have you on a treadmill. He'll definitely get you running your heart out but you're chasing after wind. And when you think you're finished, he moves the line. It's a, it's a bad sport to play. Philippians 3.12 Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many are, as are perfect, have this attitude, and if, anything, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Again, the point on the board up here, <clears throat> Satan's strategy. It's not that Satan doesn't want you to run a race. He just wants you to run towards a different finish line than the one the Lord has set before you. And in your own lives, that finish line, whatever that attraction is, in that direction, it's going to be different, I assume, for all of you because we're all born with different weaknesses in our own flesh. Hence Solomon's wisdom in Proverbs, go back to Proverbs 15:21, Proverbs 15:21. So it's not for a lack of activity. Satan wants you to run. He wants you to run hard. He just wants you to run in the wrong direction. He wants you to be exhausted. He wants you to be too tired by the time you get here to even pay attention. Like some of you probably are. It's possible some of you are right now. He wants you to strive after the wind so that you, when you get to time with the Lord, you're too tired. That's why it's really good to wake up with him. Make it a habit. If you've got time to make yourself a coffee, let's face it, you've got time to read a couple of chapters in the Bible first thing in the morning. Oh, but my hair, and my, then get up earlier. I'm serious. Or how about this? You can get up early because you go to bed earlier. What are half the people doing burning the midnight oil like every day of the week? No wonder you're tired all the time. Go to bed. I'm serious. What are you doing? 
What's that important that's going to wear you out, that's worth wearing out so you can't pick up your Bible in the morning? Proverbs 15, 21, Folly is joy to him who lacks sense. Imagine that. Just look at that. Folly is joy. That's, that's unbelievable. But that's what the Bible says. Folly is joy to him who lacks sense. It's goofy, right? But a man of understanding walks straight. As the Spirit stated on Tuesday evening, the one who walks straight is also the one who is sober, not intoxicated with the things of the world, but rather intoxicated with love. This came out on Tuesday. Love keeps soldiers soldiering. Love keeps soldiers soldiering. Love is the great motivator. And you know what? Love never fails. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, part A. It is the great motivator. Think about it in your own life. What's the greatest motivation in your life? Love. Why do you do things for others? Why do you do things for, say, the, I don't know, pick the closest person in your life? Why do you do things for them ever? Because you love them. Why else? For mo many of you, you'd probably walk through fire for one or more people in your life. Why? Because you love them. Jesus Christ happened to hang on a cross. Why? Because he loved you. And he would have done it if you were the only person that required it. That's true love. Love is the great motivator. Any way you slice it. Not knowledge. Not even wisdom. Love. That's why you can't bottle up love. That's why it's you know shame on us if we try to just say love is this Greek word or this Hebrew word with this short little definition. Shame on us. That's not love at all. That's cold. That's pen and paper. Go to 1 Corinthians 13.4. 1 Corinthians 13.4. Love is the great motivator. It keeps soldiers soldiering. I mean, what else is there? Eventually you're going to run out. If there's not love present, whatever is motivating you is going to run out. 1 Corinthians 13.4. Here's what love is. Patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. Yeah, love never fails. Now I want you to concentrate on that. We're going to synthesize three passages really quick. Okay, love never fails. Point number one, go to John 3.16. John 3.16. Love never fails. It's the great motivator. So concentrate on the next three passages. We're going to synthesize. Point number one, John 3.16, For God so what? Loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So God loved. Point number two, go to John 15.12. John 
this is my commandment, Jesus speaking, that you love one another, how? Just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So now we have Jesus' love. Point number three, go to 1 John 4.19. 1 John 4.19. So we have what we could call God, or even specifically the Father's love, for he is the one who sent the Son. We have the Son's love. And then look at this, 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us, but we love. If we synthesize God's love, Jesus' love, and then our own, we arrive at the point on the board. I mean, why are you here tonight? <clears throat> Presumably, fundamentally, it's because you love the Lord. It's because the sweetest thing you've ever tasted is the Word of God, the very bread of life. That's why you're here, I'm assuming. And that's what keeps you soldiering. And it's tough out there, is it not? It's, it's a blood fest. It's a, it's a battle. And it certainly doesn't help we're up here in the Northeast. It's brutal. So you're soldiers. And you have to keep on soldiering. What keeps you soldiering? Love. What motivates you? Love. And you know what? What does it say in the principle on the board? Love never fails. So cling to it. Hold on to it. Don't let Satan rob you of it. Don't let them get you going down some wrong pathway. I was reflecting on this. God's love didn't fail us in his plan for salvation, did it? Nope. He was motivated by love, and it didn't fail. The love of our Lord has never failed either, for it was what took him all the way to the cross as the mediator between a wrathful father and his creation. So if that very same love is, by grace through faith, imparted to us, which it is, then what can we conclude? What's on the board? This is what motivates us. It's the same thing that motivated God the Father and God the Son. It's the same love that was present when the God had decided to save you. That's the great motivator. And you know what? We love because he first loved us. In other words, he says, I'm going to pour out my love into you. And you're going to experience it. Not the way I do because you're not perfect. You're not me, says God. But I'm going to give you a piece of my love. And you're going to experience it in time. And what have we learned about, the, about what the Bible says, even about salvation? If you don't have love, you got nothing. It's arguably the great litmus test for salvation itself. If you don't have love, you don't have Him. Because you know what the Bible says? God is love. So if you got it, don't let Satan rob you of it. Don't let him muddy it. Don't let him contort it. Now, on a more practical note, as we've been studying this out, the Spirit gave us some wonderful perspective. And for some of you, the following is an appropriate principle to dwell on up here on the board. Life in the devil's world. <clears throat> A change of circumstances doesn't solve your problems. I know that's not what the world tells you. The world says, ah, you know, start over, do something different, 
you know, uh, it, and it doesn't mean just moving geographically. That's one area where people seem to do it. You know, change jobs, buy a new house, get a new spouse. Oh, that, oh I'm like a rapper. Um, <laughs> who's got a hat? Give me a hat. <laughs> a change of circumstances doesn't solve your problems. I know. Newsflash. It just doesn't. You know why? Your contentment is not a function of your circumstances. That's biblical. A new place guarantees, you know what? New problems. Honest to goodness. A new place guarantees new problems. A new job is not going to do it. It's just not going to do it. You know why? Because there are jerks in every job place. Every circumstance you're ever going to run into, you know what you get? You get new jerks and new bad bosses, and new crappy pay, and new whatever it is that you're, you know, you're complaining about. And really, you shouldn't be squirming like that because the Lord's got everything under control. Last time I checked, he runs the universe. And so that's life in the devil's world. No matter where you go, it's still the devil's world. And he's following you around. If you've been positive for any period of time, you have a big old bullseye on you right on you and that doesn't go away you're going to take the bullseye to another what whatever it is you're contemplating or whatever it is you've contemplated in the past a, a new place guarantees a new problems so they just don't go away the message the fundamental practical message then is stop looking for excuses you're missing the point in other words being sanctified where you are Remember, God doesn't make mistakes. You are where you need to be right now. Rather than praying for deliverance from your circumstances, pray for deliverance within your circumstances. Too many people, I think, pray for deliverance from circumstances. Oh, you've got to get me out of this job, or you've got to get me out of this relationship, or you've got to get me out of this thing or that thing. No. Nope. Wrong prayer. Pray for deliverance within your circumstances. That's what brings glory to God. Even Jesus alluded to that, right? Oh, so you love those who love you. Big deal. Even sinners do that. How about loving those that are your enemy? How about that? How about loving those that are, I don't know, assaulting you? How about that? He doesn't say run away from it. He says love them. If your enemy comes along and rips the shirt off your back, give me, I don't know, your jacket, give me your shirt. I don't know. So don't pray for deliverance from your circumstances. Pray for deliverance within your circumstances. Because, I mean, how many, how many new um, knobs can you turn in one lifetime? Right? If you look at anybody who struggles with this, you, basically what you see is a long history of changes. And it's not like the poem. That's why I read you the poem. Learn to live an ordinary life. Extraordinary, take care of itself. If God wants extraordinary things for you, great. But learn to live an ordinary life. Learn to be happy with where you're at, whatever that is. I can tell you from firsthand experience, you are far wealthier than the average person in this world. I mean astronomically wealthier. 
So all of you that are complaining about jobs and money, and all, you need to cut it out. Because there are people really suffering. Like really suffering. And I don't mean my macchiato was misbrewed. That's not suffering. Oh my God, my cleaning lady can't come this week. That's not suffering. Clean your own toilet for once. Do you know what I'm getting at? I'm being a wise guy, but you get what I'm saying at. Oh my God, my hair coloring is so bad. 150 bucks down the tube. <laughs> Whose fault is that? A dollar. Dollar Shave Club. <laughs> Just saying. Deliverance within my circumstances. <laughs> right? Just saying. As the Spirit mentioned on Tuesday, God has given you a personal assignment. I like that. A personal assignment. It's that personal. Like everyone here has a personal assignment. It's like getting orders when you're in the service. Everybody couldn't wait for their orders. You're standing there like a stiff. Collins, Edward. You, know, you get this little manila envelope and you're like, where am I going? You know, and some kid's like, oh my God, I'm going to South Dakota. Oh, you're a bummer, man. But a good soldier would say, cool. I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to go to South Dakota. I'm going to be the best frozen airman ever. Because <laughs> that's my personal assignment. And someone higher up than me saw fit to send this soldier to South Dakota, where it's, guess what, hard. Or you can be like the soldier that goes AWOL, the soldier that complains or calls home to mommy and says, can you get me out? I, I like the uniform, but I don't like the service. I'll get really quiet. Why? It's an analogy. Because we do it all the time. I don't like my assignment. Mommy and daddy, I don't like my assignment. God's got me doing this. I'm just suffering. No, you're not. Your courage broke. Big deal. <laughs> Seriously, has anybody here, I mean, really suffered in most of the ways that most Americans complain about? Probably not. Probably not. And was it really suffering, or was it only suffering because you had deemed some bar here, and God said, I'm going to put you here? Because, you know, when you graduated high school, you had it all mapped out. Okay, 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 okay. I'm going to graduate college. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to graduate at least magna cum laude, okay? I'm going to get a good job. I'm going to get married by 25, kids at 27, two and a half exactly, a dog, a cat, a house. If I don't have all these things, God's failing me. What's wrong with you? Seriously, what the hell is wrong with you? Same thing was wrong with me. We're idiots. We have been given personal assignments. That's a very special thing. And as I've argued many times with people, the harder the assignment, the greater the blessing. I know it don't feel like it, but if you're a good soldier, that's the way it goes. The harder the assignment, the greater the blessing. What an appropriate way to think about our lives, personal assignments. And the fruit is, up here on the board, freedom. When you accept your assignment as a good soldier and you get back into rank and file and you say, I'm going to do this thing, I accept my orders, my marching orders are in, I'm going to do it, you're the one who 
is blessed out with what? Freedom. Not thinking about, oh my God, where's, the, where's my options? Can I get out of this thing? Freedom and acceptance. If we just accept the calling on our life, we are set free to commit our hearts, minds, and souls to the cause. It is in this place that we find the peace that our Lord has promised us. You'll never be at peace if you're not at peace with your orders. Never be at peace. I mean, some of you, I'm looking around, I mean, a, a good number of you are single. Now, I know that's not the easiest thing, necessarily. But you know what? You know what Paul said? You get more time to devote to the Lord, more than the rest of us married people do. Guess what? You get a certain blessing. Why? Because you stayed and you accepted your orders. Did Paul count himself blessed? Oh, wait a minute. Let me, not Paul. How about Jesus? You know, the single guy? Did he count himself blessed? You bet he did. Why? Because he accepted his marching orders. The Bible says present yourself, and there's a military connotation there, to righteousness, as a slave to righteousness. Read Romans 6. Present yourself. Accept your orders. If you refuse or if you, you know, try to finagle or haggle with God, there goes your peace. Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Here's some more perspective worth reiterating from Tuesday's lesson. We believers have purpose, have a purpose with eternal repercussions that most people don't even understand. Your purpose is much greater than any. It's like the conversation I was having with Sean. The problem is a kid like Sean, I'm thinking of Noah as well, who actually have their bearings towards Christ, their friends are not going to get it. No matter what they do, they're not going to get it. So these poor kids have to go to school being surrounded by awfulness with people that just, will just don't get it. And they may even be hated on because they have a certain confidence that they exude, that people are jealous of. Because deep down inside, if you, if you're, if you don't, <laughs> if you haven't accepted the fundamentals about your creator, remember Romans 1 says everybody knows there's God. If you haven't accepted the fundamentals about your creator, something is missing in your life and you know it. And then along comes someone like these two young gentlemen, and they have it. What are you going to be? Jealous? Offended? We believers have a purpose with eternal repercussions that most people don't understand. So, whatever you do, here's the reason behind all of this perspective, and it has everything to do with motivating you. Don't give up. The devil's world is trying to break your heart. Trying to break your heart. Don't give up. One of my favorite cartoons. Remember this? Oh, hopefully you can see it. See the frog? Halfway down the stork's throat. Or he's got the hands around the throat. Don't give up, ever. Don't be swallowed up by the world. In fact, to be more accurate... Here's what it comes down to. This is more of a maturity principle, but whatever. Don't ever believe that God will allow you to give up. 
We've talked about this in the past. You're not allowed. You're really not. You can play this little game, and Satan can scare you. But if you're a believer, you're not allowed to give up. The one who's able to give up is an apostate, and they have a problem with salvation. A true believer can't give up. Why? God won't allow it. Because you know what? Grace never fails. That's why. And his, guess what? His grace is sufficient, even to pull you out of the doldrums of your own self-pity. Satan might get the best of you for a while, but don't believe he can get the best of you forever. That attitude alone lightens the load, doesn't it? Knowing that he can never press you down so far that you can't get back up. Now things like suicide are off the table. Things like deep depression are alleviated from your soul. Why? Just knowing that God's never going to let you go. So to be more accurate, don't just give up, but don't ever believe that God will allow you to give up. Because he won't. And at the end of it, when you look back, you'll realize, every believer will realize, he never let me go. And I never really did give up. That's the beauty of God's promises. See, human rationale will moan and groan and rationalize things all the way till the end. Get you thinking, oh, you can, you, know, you can do this and you can be that. No, you can't. He owns you. He bought you with a price. You're his. In any case, dwell on that. Have faith, soldier. Satan's system wants to take you captive, not just your grace blessings, and he wants you to steal your heart and soul. But don't fall for the lies. They include horrible accusations against your creator and savior. What's the one I just alluded to? That he's incapable of saving you daily. That his grace isn't sufficient. That it's insufficient somehow. Those are lies and accusations horrible against your creator and your savior. And we only become things like depressed when we give in to those lies. One other important point, again, worth reiterating, came up with our brief survey of Job's circumstances. This is a wonderful point as well. And you have to think this way. I mean, this could be, I'm just saying, this could be the person to your left or your right right now. Job's friends, good intentions. We learn from Job's circumstances that even well-intentioned loved ones can be stumbling blocks to us. We mustn't ever lose sight of who our Redeemer is, who our Deliverer is, who our Lord is. Faith places our trust in Him alone. We learn from Job's circumstances that even well-intentioned loved ones can be stumbling blocks to us. Yeah, I know. Surprising, right? We mustn't ever lose sight of who our Redeemer, Deliverer, or Lord is. Faith places our trust in Him alone. So just have a healthy suspicion, a healthy respect for the presence of someone else's flesh in your life. That people don't always give you good advice because there's always some, you know, ulterior motive floating around the surface area. Oh, yeah, you should totally do that. Why? And they stick with truth serum and like, because it's good for me. 
because I'm a self-serving jerk, because I'm self-centered, and I'm selfish, and if you do that, it's good for me. Did that just come off? Wouldn't it be nice to, I wouldn't want true serve. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus is like, no way, get that needle away from me. <laughs> like, we'd all be like totally skinny from running away from it. <laughs> I don't want somebody else to have it. Not in my presence. I don't want, I don't really want to know what you think of me. But I do care about what you think of Christ. And that's the one that matters. When this happens, guess what? We begin understanding the fundamental truth about by grace through faith. Remember, Proverbs 4.7 says, Acquire wisdom and receive understanding and discernment. You're being given wisdom. It's being imparted to your souls right now. True wisdom looks like this. Grace wins. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Any questions? I just went through a five-minute diatribe on this. He's not going to let you go. Matter of fact, you can't be let go. You're never going to fail completely. Why? Because God makes this promise. He will. It's not maybe he will. It says he will. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so there's almost like this, I don't want to say selfish, but it really is from God's perspective. When he pours out grace to us, he's the one who's glorified. And he likes that. He really likes that thing happening when he gets glorified by his own grace. So we're not going to be able to insult him or thwart him in his will or purpose to work for his good pleasure. Oh, it's, it's mind-blowing. True wisdom also looks like this. This is another thing that I was thinking about as the Spirit was teaching us on Tuesday. True wisdom includes knowing what you don't know. Now, just stop for a second, will you? Just stop, every, stop the presses. Seriously. True wisdom includes knowing what you don't know. Too many people think that wisdom is knowing more, even inventing things in the absence of divine revelation. This is not wisdom. Some people read the Bible and they say, okay, so it's really not in there, this little circumstance, this little loophole I'm looking for. But if I take this passage right here out of context, I take this verse and this one and this one, and I create a little doctrine. I'll just call it something fancy, multisyllabic, of course, so nobody questions it. And then I'll call, I'll sew it all together and I'll call it wisdom because it suits me. So people invent stuff that's actually not even in Scripture. Why? Because they, they have this messed up attitude about wisdom itself that wisdom is always about knowing everything. Uh-uh. There's another side. The wisest people I have ever met, ever, know what they don't know and will be the first to admit it. I don't know that. I don't, I don't, I don't know what that, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. Love it. Can't stand people. I know everything. They just vomit on you. 
Look at how much I know. I even know stuff that's not in the Bible. Wait a minute, whoa. Step back there, slick. Slick Modi. That's not wisdom. Making stuff up is not wisdom. Searching for things that aren't in Scripture is not wisdom. There is way more here than you will ever learn in a lifetime. Way more. So, as I've been saying for years now, spend your time on learning what's actually in here, not what's not. That's true wisdom. If it's not in there, guess what? God doesn't want you to know it. And the wisest thing you can do is let it be. It's not in the Bible. I can't tell you how many times I've said that to people. Hey, Pastor Ed. Sometimes I think they're trying to trip me up. Sometimes I think they're just being people. What about this? What do you think about that? I don't know. I can make something up, but I'd be lying to you. But I won't. I don't know. And you should be okay with that. You should say, I don't know either. And then move on to something that's actually in the Bible. So true wisdom includes knowing what you don't know. Too many people think that wisdom is knowing more, even inventing things in the absence of divine revelation. That is not wisdom. I think one of the greatest things the Spirit has taught us over the past five years even or so is this. If something's not in the Bible, then don't take the liberty to, quote, connect the dots. As we've been learning, here's something that actually is in the Bible in spades, up here on the board. Are your hands finding something good to work hard at for the glory of God? You are never retired. This came up on Sunday and was reiterated Tuesday. You're never retired. You are a soldier for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that means you're working in the workplace, great. If that means you're a stay-at-home mom or a homekeeper, that's great. If that means you're retired by world standards and now you're, I don't know, whatever you're doing, helping somebody out or living for Christ or just praying your, you know, praying your behind off, whatever it is you're doing, you're not, don't retire. The word itself is kind of offensive when you think about it. Retire just means, do you know what I mean? It's like, I'm just going to become a potato and you can just pick me up and put me in the recliner over there. And it literally have this, my butt cheeks imprinted because I just spent all day there. Right? You know what I'm getting at? That does, doesn't retirement sound funky to you? Doesn't retirement sound nasty? It doesn't sound good to me at all. It doesn't sound inviting to me. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying this isn't about Pastor Red. It's, it's about all of us. Retirement's not inviting. Retirement a, is, a, is a scam. That whole idea of retiring is a scam. And Satan's really smart, and that's what he's really good at. Scams. Don't ever retire. It doesn't mean don't ever stop working. If that's what you need to do, then fine. That's cool, too. But if you need to stop work, then you, didn't, you don't stop working for the Lord. Find new and exciting ways. Pray to the Lord. What can I, how, use me, Lord. How about that? Pray for that. Use me, Lord. Not strengthen my thumb muscle because I'm getting tired. You're never retired. Personally, I think this is an area of failure we can see in our own country even. I posted the following lyrics on social media this morning and asked, some of you know this song, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and I asked, whatever happened to this kind of American patriotism in our beloved country? 
Some of you know the, you know, glory, glory, hallelujah. You know that song? That's this song. Let me give you the lyrics. I want you to ask yourself. This was written in the 1800s, somewhere up in Boston. It was printed in the, uh, the Atlantic, which I think is still in publication. Um, this was printed back somewhere in the vicinity of the Civil War even. And uh, just look at it. And, and what do you see? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Oh, now that wouldn't last already in this world, right? They'd be like, throw that one out. <laughs> right? Sensor, sensors are in. Anyways, this is our country before. This is what, 150 years ago? 160, maybe? Something like that. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. And then this is the chorus, glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. And then the chorus. I have read a fiery gospel writ in burnished rows of steel. As you deal with my contemners, so with you my grace shall deal. Let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel, since God, God is marching on in the chorus. He has sounded from the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. And in the chorus, and in the last refrain. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free while God is marching on. Whatever happened? What happened? That was America. That wasn't true American patriotism not that long ago. What happened? I think I'm going to stop there. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for the privilege and the honor of studying your word this evening. Thank you so much for gathering us together in truth. Thank you for always shining light on the good, the bad, and the ugly. For it's all good from your perspective. It's all good to see it as truth. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.